Today, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to chapter 7, and I'll read aloud what we'll be studying. Jesus had his disciples, and he comes to the very last things he says to them, and he has some hard words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Father God, as we look at your word today, we we will be challenged and even fearful at times of what we hear and what we read. But Lord, may we all hear the one true message of the gospel and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so may you receive much glory and honor as we sing about Jesus as our cornerstone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We come to the last part of his sermon, and then we'll head to a second speech that Jesus gives in Matthew. But in these last words, I was studying Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7... um, we are looking at the last verses. I think it's 21, 21 through 27. Uh, I was thinking about a, a saying that I've heard throughout the years. It just kind of came to my mind. I bet you've heard it as well. I'll let you finish the saying. The road to hell is paved with... See, we all know it. I, in fact, it's so familiar, I thought, that is either in Proverbs or a country song. And I wasn't sure, so I Googled both and and no one really knows where it came from. There was some heavy metal band that I'd never heard of that had turned it into a song. And I said, oh, I can't listen to that. It's painful. But um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's pretty close to the point of the text today. It's, it's what Jesus is confronting us with. You know, um, heaven and hell are real. In fact, Jesus spoke more about warnings about heaven than he did promises, uh, excuse me, warnings of hell than he did promises of heaven. Now, when we look at texts that talk about heaven and hell, they're very uh, metaphorical. They are uh, written uh, with metaphors to help us get the ideas and the gist of it. They're presented as real, but the language describing it is uh, often poetic and using metaphors. So, When you hear uh, Jesus speaking, uh, it's not always the word hell, but you see the idea. In fact, as he concludes his sermon, he hits on it four times in just the last two messages, last week twice and this week twice. Uh, So he wasn't concerned about the fact that it's not very popular to talk about hell. Um, In in last week, he talked about, um, in the conclusion of the sermon last week, he used the metaphor saying that the destruction of the broad path, or the destination of the broad path leads to destruction. He said the narrow path leads to life, the broad gate and the broad path leads to destruction. And then talking about false prophets, he said the, 
the branches that were unfruitful were burned and they were thrown into the fire and they were burned if they were unproductive. And then today he says uh, that there will be many who have a complete rejection of him, that he completely rejects them. That's a picture of the day of judgment. And they say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Uh, and then he likens the, the, the disobedience of one. He talks about two houses, and he talks about this storm that is coming. And this storm is the final judgment day that it comes, and it destroys completely one house, and the other house remains strong. So Jesus is definitely trying to warn us in his sermon. He's, he's called these men and women to follow him. He's called these, uh, said, come out of your way of life, a great business with their families, a fishing business. He says, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Uh, Matthew, a tax collector, getting rich off the backs of his Jewish brothers, collecting uh, taxes for the government. He calls them, he says, follow me and Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus. And Jesus calls those disciples who are following Jesus and he says, gather around on this mountain at my feet. And so Jesus is giving them the sermon on the mountain and he's been preaching and we've been working through his sermon week by week, just looking at every little thing he's been saying. And now he comes to his sermon and he has warning, 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 warning. And he's saying there's a storm coming. Judgment is coming. Heaven and hell are real. And today the point is this, that many, many, many people think they're going to heaven and are shocked to find out that they're not. And he says, I never knew you. And so this is a very sober text that Jesus is very concerned to end his sermon with as we come to the end of his sermon. So may we ask God to help us Heed the message of Jesus this morning. God, would you help us this morning? So many beautiful, wonderful people here today. And we all need your spirit to, to open our, our ears and eyes and minds and hearts to understand the point of this message. May none of us be deceived. May we all truly understand. Maybe some will reject, maybe some will walk away, but Lord, may no one not understand and be deceived. And may we all believe in Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So in this text, we see very fearful words. People who are very, apparently very faithful, very Orthodox confession, Lord, Lord, and very uh, fruitful ministries. And they come to the Lord on the judgment day. They say, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. This is a bothersome text. And in fact, if I had to make an outline of it, I would say the main idea is I'm very bothered. And now let me show you all the points that I'm bothered about. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the bothersome issues of this text. What is it that is the mark of a true disciple? What is the chief characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus? If it's, if it's not this profession, if it's not this ministry, then what is it? What do we look for to say, okay, when I stand before God on judgment day, that I know he's not going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I don't want anyone to leave this room. You all have to choose, but 
And I pray you'll choose to trust Christ, but I don't want anyone leaving this room deceived or, or confused. I want it to be crystal clear what Jesus is saying it takes. So we're going to look. First of all, let's look at how he addresses their profession in verse 21 through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This text is just scary because these people are shocked. They are completely blindsided. They are absolutely shocked. Do what? What do you mean? I mean, that's the sense of this text. It's scary because they are completely caught off guard. They're like all of us. I'm assuming at least most of us are like all of us saying, I'm going to heaven. Jesus is my master. He is my Lord. And they go right down that path and they find out. He says, I never knew you. Knew you. Those are the scariest words of scripture. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Street 4, I've quoted this research many times. It seems like yesterday, it's probably like 10 years ago now, but several years ago, George Barna did research across the country and asked, do you profess to be a Christian? Shreveport was numero uno, number one in the country, had the most people who professed to be Christians in all the country, which certainly, I guess it's got to be in all the world. Shreveport had the highest number of people who professed to be Christians. Certainly this message is very relevant for us to make sure, because I am concerned, genuinely concerned, that there are going to be a lot of people from Shreveport, Bossier, who on that day are shocked to find out the Lord says, I never knew you. How can that be? Well, let's look. What's wrong with their profession? Let's start with this profession. Are they right to say, Lord, Lord, or is there something wrong in their profession? Aren't we supposed to say, Lord? Well, Paul teaches us in Romans 10, 9 through 10 to profess. He says, if you confess with your mouth, that's a profession, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So he says, yes, it is right and good and necessary. It's absolutely necessary for us to confess that Jesus is Lord from a heart of faith in Jesus as Lord. This word Lord is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Jehovah, which was their name for God because they so respected God that they used that term. And so it's an orthodox profession of faith. They're saying the right things. They're singing that song that we were singing. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Spirit. I believe in the virgin birth. They have an orthodox faith. They can explain the statement of faith. They understand the teachings. They've heard the words of Jesus. And they can say, yes, Jesus is Lord. 
He's, that word Lord is carrying with the Old Testament concept of God. He's, he's creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler. He's the provident creator who guides all of creation. He's the sovereign king. He's the sovereign ruler. He is one to be submitted to and listened to as the one who created. He is the one to govern. Therefore, he is the one to be obeyed. They are saying, that's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. They're not just saying it once. They're saying it twice. Lord, Lord, that's emphatic passion. And they're not saying it in a private confession. They're saying it on Judgment Day, a public confession for all to see. They're publicly professing with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he says, I never knew you. I'm not your Lord. Wow. That is bothersome. So what is wrong if their profession of faith is Accurate, orthodox, passionate, public, and it's about Jesus Christ as Lord. Nothing's wrong with it. That's not the problem. So what is the problem? Well, look at verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Ah, okay. At this point, studying the text, I'm like, okay, so they didn't actually do the will of the Father. They just gave lip service to the fact that Jesus is Lord, but they didn't actually obey Jesus as Lord. They didn't say, oh, Jesus is Lord, and then their life reflected the fact that he was Lord because proof is in the pudding, that, that actions speak louder than words. And so, okay, at that point, I could end the sermon and say, good. The problem is too many people are claiming Jesus is Lord, but he hasn't brought about obedience in their life. They're not actually obeying Jesus as Lord. They're just giving it lip service, right? Right. And that would be true and accurate in the sermon. Walk away until you keep reading. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, you're saying only those who do the will of the Father. Well, I'm saying, Lord, I prophesied in your name. Is that not your will? I cast out demons in your name. Is that not doing your will? I do many mighty works in your name. I I, I did miracles in your name. How can you insinuate that I'm not doing the will of the Father? Look at the results of my ministry. Wow. That's... That's bothersome. They've got the right religion. They've got lots of results. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, that's what Jesus does. Jesus in this sermon has been hammering us, the people in church, he, he, he goes outside the church and says, let's, let's go eat. Let's hang out. I love you. I came to, to forgive and to seek and to save you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And then he, he says, you know, I, I love you. I, I want to die for your sins. And he comes in the church. He says, shame on you. And we want to get that backwards, don't we, as the church? We want to go outside and say, shame on you. I love you. We're doing so good. 
And Jesus says, too much hypocrisy is in the church. The church is meant to be the salt and the light so that they may know Christ. And so Jesus is once again coming to us and saying, you are in grave danger. You've got, you're very religious. You sing these songs, which is good. And these songs that Granger puts up there are great lyrics. They're faithful to the scriptures. He says, you're singing these songs about Jesus is Lord and you believe in the Trinity and the virgin birth and, and you've got a statement of faith and you signed a church covenant that says you agree with it. And that's, that's all good. And, and this church is growing and you're expanding and you're reaching people and lives are being transformed. There's a lot of good results coming from your ministry, but he's saying, be careful. Because many of you may get to me and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, hey, I never knew you. And that's, that's scary. If it's not scary, then you're not listening because Jesus is intentionally saying, warning, warning, warning. You're in a house, a storm is coming, and I'm trying to tell you, get out. So yeah, it's, it's fearful because the storm is seriously dangerous, but it's loving, it's gracious, it's kind, it's merciful. It's what anybody would do for someone they love to say, hey, you need to realize the danger. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's warning his own disciples, his own, those who profess. He says, beware when you practice religion and when you have ministry that has a lot of results, beware, many of you will Say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. So what is going on when he says to people who had all this positive results from their ministries, and he says, I never knew you. Well, then what was going on? How could they do miracles? How could they prophesy? How could they preach the word of God, preach the gospel, see people saved, see demons cast out and them come to new life in Christ and, and to see miracles done and people healed? How, how, what is that bothers me? Because I see nothing in the grammar, nothing in the language to say that that wasn't going on. Because there's three possibilities here. Either number one, they didn't really do that. Maybe they were just saying that on judgment day. Maybe at judgment day, they stood before the Father. And he says, I never knew you. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I did this, this, and this. And he's going, no, you didn't. But I don't think that's it. Because I think the text makes it clear that they were really doing that. And that even adds to the shock of the day. Jesus presents that as that was really going on. So I don't think we can say they didn't really do that, though some may think that. Maybe that's right. Secondly, the possibility is explained in the fact that there is an enemy who can do powerful things and powerful works in order to deceive. That's taught all over the scriptures. And later on in Matthew's gospel, 24, 24, Jesus says, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So false prophets, who he says, beware, they look like sheep, but they're wolves in sheep clothing. They, Jesus says, can do many powerful signs and wonders. That's miracles. 
2 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with wicked deception, so that those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so there's the idea that both Paul and Jesus say that the enemy can do false, powerful miracles. He's the devil. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. That's his M.O. So it shouldn't surprise us that many people can do powerful miracles even as unbelievers. Matthew 12, 27, when Jesus casts out a demon, he heals a blind man and a mute man. He was blind and mute. The scribes and Pharisees saw it and said, you did this by the power of the devil. And he acknowledged that that is a real power that he says, if, if a kingdom is divided against itself, if the devil was working against the devil, it would fall. This is done by the power of God. Jesus has the power of God. So he acknowledges completely that powerful healings and exorcisms can be done by the power of God. But by the power of the devil. Jesus says, I am doing this by the power of God, which is superior to the power of the devil. We see the same in Luke and in Acts. In Acts 19, 13 through 16, seven sons of Sceva. Say that five times. He was a Jewish high priest. His name was Sceva or Sceva. He had seven sons. They were going around casting out, name, casting out demons, supposedly in the name of Jesus, but they weren't doing it in the name of Jesus. And one man was filled with, devil, with demons said, the demon said, look, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but I don't know you. And they beat him up and stripped them. Up. They, the demons inside the man beat up the seven sons and they ran off naked. And that's what Jesus said, naked. So very powerful miracles can be done by unbelievers. But finally, I think probably what mostly what we're talking about here is that God is sovereign and God is gracious and God uses evil and wicked all the time to bring blessing and good. Joseph in the Old Testament told his brothers when they sold him and beat him and sold him to slavery and then his whole life came full circle, Joseph said, hey, what you, what you guys meant for evil, God meant for good. King Cyrus, God used this unbelieving king to, to release Israel to go back to their homeland. The ultimate picture of this is the cross. Wicked, evil, God-haters insulted Jesus. They weren't like, hey, we're going to crucify him so he can save the world. No, they were like, you are a liar. You are setting up a false authority over the king of Rome. You are, a, you are everything about you is a lie. And they spat and they insulted and they mocked and they beat and they crucified him with the Roman version of an electric chair. And God took all that wickedness, all that evil, and used it as the event that offers salvation to the world he used it as the event that saves his children. Amen. So God uses even unbelievers, even unbelievers who have very 
fruitful ministries who are seeing masses of amounts of people come to know the Lord, churches expanding, and they're blowing, and they're going, and they're in the newspapers, and they're getting all this credit, and God can use all of that, even if that man or that woman doesn't really know the Lord. And that person stands before the Lord one day, and he says, I never knew you. Why does that scare, why does that bother us? Because it's like finding out Billy Graham gets to heaven and he says, I never knew you. John Piper gets to heaven and you just picture John Piper going, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. You just go, well, if they ain't getting in, I sure ain't getting in. Right? But let me tell you, Billy Graham... John Piper ain't getting in based on their ministry or even their profession. Nobody is getting in because of their religion or the results of their ministry. So what's the point here? The chief mark of a true disciple is obedience. That's the point of the text. I hope you're writing that down. If you're not writing down, I hope you're mentally writing it down. The chief mark of a true disciple is obedience. And I'm going to tweak that in just a minute, but I want to build to it. It's not your religion. It's not the results of your ministry or your religion. It's obedience. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, praise the Lord, because it had been founded on the rock. It had the rock as its foundation as opposed to verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So the one who does the words of Jesus builds its house on the foundation of Jesus, the rock, and it sustains, it survives, it perseveres through the storm. But everyone, verse 26, who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not obey, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against his house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, what's the problem with this parable of two builders? The houses look exactly the same. You can't see the foundation. It's buried deep under the ground. The houses of religion, the houses of morality, the houses of of everything, the houses of ministry results outwardly look the same, but the foundation is the difference. When we were bought this house over here and we're turning it into offices, we thankfully had a little wiggle room for, un, for uh, unforeseen circumstances because the back end of the house was two-story. We knew we were going to knock that down because it was a disaster as far as the way it was built and interesting things that were going on. So we said, well, we're going to have to tear that down, but at least we can save money in the slab. Wrong we get over there, we get a call, Granger calls me, he says, guess what, they're, they're working and they just discovered that that end of the house 
Not the end we built on. We built on a solid foundation. Everybody relax. But the end of the house that we tore the part down, he says, no, there wasn't one slab. There wasn't two slabs. There was three slabs. They poured three slabs on top of each other. No wonder the top slab was beautiful and had no cracks. It's just been floating around. And so it's built on top of a slab, which was built on top of a the slab. They had the, the driveway, and on top of the driveway, they poured something like a porch. And then on top of that, they poured the slab to their new addition. It was a disaster. We had to go in and completely dig it out, rip it up, pour a new one. And as they were pouring that new one, this shows you how important the foundation is. They dug the, the slab people drove up without the builder knowing it was happening. And so they dug the trenches and were going to pour. Before they poured, it rained and filled with water. So they couldn't pour the slab. You've got to get this foundation right. So they had to come back in on their dime and dig it all back out and start back over, dig those trenches and, pour the, and build the forms. And finally, they poured a brand new solid slab that will be the foundation for the building. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how great the results of your religion or ministry is. It doesn't matter. That's not what matters. It's the foundation. You have to have a radically new foundation. You have to have that old foundation ripped out of you and start over with a completely new foundation upon which this house of religion or practicing your righteousness or results of ministry are coming up from. It's all about the foundation. It's all about having a new heart. The scripture says, Jeremiah prophesied about the day that you will have a new heart. And from that new heart, you will fulfill the will of God. And so once again, he's hammering on the religious people. He's saying, don't look at your religion. Don't look at the results. You have to have the spirit of God bringing within you a new heart that is the foundation of your religion and the results. But it has to be done by God. John puts it this way. You must be born again. Theologians call this conversion, regeneration, life from death. Ripping out the old, starting over with the new. That God does this work in our hearts. The storms of life reveal the quality of our foundation. The word of God can be a storm in your life. It can challenge you. It can put pressure on you. It can challenge your thoughts and your actions. It can hold up a mirror if you allow it. And it will reveal to you, you've got a good foundation in Christ. If you're relying on anything else, let it rip it away. Let it burn it up so that your only hope is found in Christ. Or circumstances can be a terrible storm in life. Oftentimes, it can be a blessing if you will find them as they humble you, as they rip the idols of our heart away, as they take away every other source of hope that we thought we had, and we realize they let us down too. And that storm will obliterate all false gods, and it can be a blessing if it leaves us with an empty and nothing left but a slab of Jesus Christ. Let Christ alone be your hope for eternal life. And those little storms can serve a great purpose because they ultimately prepare you for the final storm that's coming. And that final storm is the day of judgment. 
It's the day where we stand before God and he says, now why should I let you into heaven? And if you say, look at my religious activity, he's just going to say, you didn't listen to my word. If you say, look at the results, look at the people I brought to faith. Look at the gospels. Look how many times I shared the gospel. Look, I memorized all this scripture. Look how many Bible studies I taught. Look how many people came to my services. Look at, look at the campuses we planted. Look what we did. He'll say, I never knew you. But if you say, please don't look at me. My Religion has no value in it for salvation. My ministry results have no value in it for salvation. Just look at your son, Jesus. He's my rock. He's my, my foundation. You promised that you would give me credit for, for Jesus' righteousness, and that's my only hope because I am bankrupt spiritually. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's talk about all the fruit of your ministry. I'm going to reward you with great blessings. So no matter what your religion, no matter what results, no one, not even John Piper, not even Billy Graham can point to those things as the hope of their salvation. It's not what we do for God like we're earning something. Rather, it's what we do with God's word. It's when God creates in us a new heart that springs forth the fruit of religion, and the results of ministry. So here's what I want to do today. I want to end our study of the Sermon on the Mount with a few questions, only I'm not going Jeff Foxworthy this time. If you remember a few weeks ago, I did Jeff Foxworthy's Here's How You Know or Here's Your Sign. These questions are meant to serve as little miniature storms to test your house. Is your profession of faith valid or false? Is your life of faith built on a faulty foundation or on the solid foundation of Jesus? So here's 10 questions. Is Kevin Wilsey in here? Kevin, will you post these? Thank you. Number one. These are coming from Stott. I, Stott has a commentary, and I took a paragraph of his. I want to give him credit, but I turned these into questions. If you're, if you're reading his commentary, you'll find it in his commentary. But question number one, do you have a new and different set of values and ideals distinct from the world? So 10 questions, and you want to answer yes. There's the, there's the key. Yes is 10 times 10 yeses is good. Do you have a new and different set of values and ideals that are distinct from the world? Because that's, you don't see that really. But, but that's from the inside, the new heart, the new foundation that Christ gives. New values, new ideals that, that are contrary to the world. Number two, do you see your life increasingly? That's a key word. I'm not trying to, to scare you to death and say you got to be perfect. But the point is, you should see increasing holiness. You should see these things increasing in your life because God gives you a new heart and he promises to transform you. 
So number two, do you see your life increasingly producing salt and light type of moral preservation and dispelling of darkness to your world? Do you see yourself increasingly being salt and light? I'm just working through the Sermon on the Mount with these questions. Because he said, the foundation is what you do with my words. The sermon is his words in addition to the whole Bible. But let's just start with the sermon. He says, what do you do with my words? Do you see you're putting into practice my words? You're going to be salt and light. Do you see yourself salty? Do you see moral preservation where you go? Do you bring the light of Jesus Christ to your workplace, to your family, to your home, to your neighborhood? Do you bring the moral goodness and ethics of Christ wherever you go? Number three, does the righteousness that you practice or your religion, does it come from a heart of love for the Lord? Because Jesus said, when you practice your righteousness, be careful that you're not doing it for others, but you're doing it because of your authentic love for me. Does your religion, does the practice of your righteousness come from a heart of love for the Lord? Number four, does your love extend even to your enemies? Does your love increasingly, are you learning to love your enemies? Because that's what the spirit empowers. Spirit enables because of the flesh. Uh -uh. Number five, is your prayer authentic and sincere with the Lord rather than showy for others? Remember Jesus said that. Don't pray for everyone to see and, and praise you and think you're so spiritual. Authentically go into your quiet place and pray to the Lord because you want to be with him. Is your prayer authentic and sincere with the Lord, not showy for others? Number six, are you learning, learning, these are right down the Sermon on the Mount, are you learning to give, pray, and or fast from a heart that has been transformed by grace? Has your experience of grace, of Jesus, gave you everything, and so it's transformed you so that you give and pray and fast because of your new heart. Number seven, are you learning to treasure? Remember that sermon, the treasure? Are you learning to treasure the things of God over the things of this world? Christ gives you a new heart so that you value the things of God more than you value the things of this world. The good gifts of God of this word only points you to the giver of those gifts. And they don't become your God. They just say, wow, what a good God I got. Number eight, is God becoming your master while money, possessions, and fame decrease and have less mastery over you? Is the Authority of God and his will over your life more, have more power over you, master you more than money, possessions, and fame. Number nine, is your mind being preoccupied more with the spread of God's rule and God's righteousness rather than being preoccupied with material security? Because as this happens, you find sacrifice. As you are preoccupied with the spread of God's glory and God's will, you find your willingness to sacrifice to bring that about. Number 10, do you desire to imitate Jesus as your perfect heavenly father? Do you desire to be like Christ? 
to be humble, to be meek, to be gentle, but to be kind, to be a servant, to be merciful, to be gracious, to be loving, to be honest, to have integrity, to be a man of your word, a woman of your word? Do you wanna be like Jesus or you just wanna be comfortable? You wanna fit in? Do you find yourself wanting to be like Jesus? Those are all things that God produces in the heart when it's been fundamentally, foundationally changed. John Stott concludes it well, saying this, Here then is the alternative, either to follow the crowd or follow our Father in heaven, either to be a reed swayed by the winds of public opinion or to be ruled by God's word, the revelation of his character and his will. And the overriding purpose of this sermon on the mount is to present us with this alternative and so to face us with the indispensable necessity of choice. You must choose. Two gates, two ways, two foundations. The way of self and the world leads to destruction and disaster. The way of Jesus leads to life and security, which will you choose? Paul says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this sermon preserved in our sacred scriptures for us to learn from and to be challenged by. Thank you for speaking truth to us even when it's hard to hear and hard to receive. I pray, Lord, that right now you'll do a mighty work of spiritual work in people's hearts and that those who came in and were, have previously been self-deceived, religion and results is what it's all about. Instead, we'll see it's all about a foundation of repentance in Christ. It's in Christ alone that we build this life. During this song, as we sing, if, if you're feeling convicted by the Spirit of God, just talk to Him during this song and say, God, I, I want to make sure that I'm building my life on your foundation, that I'm a sinner and I need your, your grace to forgive me and to save me. I need to repent and believe only and trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and let the Spirit of God rip out the old heart and implant in you a new heart of faith by the Spirit that has the power of God that produces fruit that is bringing glory to God that enables you to, to say yes to those ten questions. Just trust Christ right now. Don't go another moment as we sing these songs together. Oh God, you are so gracious to give us this warning. You are so good to us to, to tell us about the storm that's coming so that we can prepare, Lord. And Lord, we're so thankful that you've sent your spirit to, to bring about conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so Lord, I pray that this morning many people trusted Christ as Savior for the first time. Lord, I pray that those who did would, would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and would tell a friend, tell me, tell someone on staff, tell a, someone in this church, hey, I trusted Christ today so that we can celebrate, come alongside them and walk with them to build their house.
on Jesus. We want to do all this for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray.